today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soja, Part 3, Korean Drama, Chapter 8, Sun. Put this around your eyes, the general said. I looked at the blindfold as he held it in his extended hand. I didn't say nothing. Come on. It's almost finished. If I have agreed to be your driver, you should comply and put this on. Not for yourself, but for me. I took the blindfold and put it on and tied it tight. Good, son. You're a civilian, so I'll talk civilized to you. If you were my soldier, things would be different, he said. I was seated in the back of a covered army jeep. He was driving me. He had taken the jeep keys from the driver who was behind the wheel just as I was about to jump inside. When the first driver asked me, where should I let you off? I answered, right where you picked me up. He must have taken me for a fool. I could tell he was one of the runners who had snatched me just the night before. Then the general appeared, ordered him out of his seat and took his place. Now only the general and I were in the vehicle and he had just called me son. Son, I repeated. Just a slip, he said dryly. He turned the key and we pulled off. Blindfolded, I pulled out a piece of paper from the pocket of my black sweats. The running clothes I had worn last night were all returned to me cleaned and laundered and folded and without any evidence of our evening together in heated war games. I had also lifted a half pencil with no eraser out of the office where they had held me after their morning raid on the cabin. In that office, I washed in the bathroom and got into the dogie for the match. After the match and meeting with the general, I was returned to that same office to change from the dogie to my sweats. In that room, I had hatched a plan regarding returning to Hyundai Beach. The paper and pencil were necessary to the plan. As we rode, I wrote down only letters and numbers. L was for left. S50 or S10 was for straight 50 feet or 10 feet or however many feet. I had calculated we had gone. R was for right. DH was for downhill. CL was for curved left. And it went like that. It was a simple map made by a blindfolded civilian, me. Getting it right didn't run as smoothly as I would have liked. The general would interrupt my count and rhythm with his random remarks, yet I believed that what I was writing was accurate. Why are you driving me back, I asked him. To make sure you get home safe. You're not too popular with my recruits after your attack last night. I wouldn't want them to avenge themselves once you are out of my line of vision. Military types can play pretty rough, he said. 
He was clever, I thought. Every word he spoke was loaded. He had converted his kidnapping of me into my attack on his recruits. He had turned himself into the hero who was getting me home safe. He had propped up that his recruits were a threat to me and could play pretty rough when in fact I had defeated them at their game when all the circumstances had been completely in their favor. Thanks for the ride. I played it off purposely. I knew I was walking a fine line in my gut. I understood that he could become my father-in-law. On the other hand, I knew he would work hard to make it impossible. He resembled my true father in his appearance, but not in his manner, thoughts, and ways. He had called me son because he felt it, and then he characterized it as a slip since his world is war. I figured he couldn't help but look at himself as America and me as the Sudan. He said he liked me and praised my marksmanship yet It was my holy Quran that made him my enemy in his war. Many men base their opinion of my faith on corrupt Muslim men they've met, but not many military men have taken the time to examine the Quran itself. To read Quran is to learn respect for the faith of Islam, whether you embrace it or not. The general didn't know that this is the reason quote-unquote smart girls like Chiasa could learn and then accept the faith. She read Quran and slowly it was creating a respect inside her for the truth of something good, a meaningful way of life. What do you see yourself doing with your life, he asked me. Family and business, I responded. That's what all men are supposed to do, right? I put the question back on him. The business is easy, he said vaguely. The business is for the family. Without the family, there's no reason for business, I responded. Then there was a long pause between us two for some distance. You're a young man. You'll learn. He broke our silence. I didn't respond. I was writing my map notes. With the military and with business, you get a manual. You get instructions. You get orders. You carry out the orders. Simple, he said, as though he were thinking aloud. I didn't say nothing back. With women, you get mood swings, attitudes, insubordination. I couldn't get my wife to follow one order. My soldiers listened to me. He laughed two times and then turned back to his thoughts. I felt sorry for him. He was like most African-American men I had seen so far. He thought that life 
did not come with a manual, even though it does. He thought only soldiers are supposed to follow orders, even though Allah has set rules and boundaries and limits for every man and woman. He wanted to be respected and admired by his women, but never would be because he didn't recognize his God himself or his limits. How do you do it? He asked. But I was focused on the scent and sound of the beach. I knew I had arrived now. Do what? I asked. The army jeep pulled over and stopped. I waited. I'll take it off now. I said before removing the blindfold. He didn't respond, so I untied it. He sat, looking at me through his rear view with a probing stare. My eyes were adjusting. Do what? I asked again. (sighs) He sighed, turned to face me and said, forget it. Okay, father, I said purposely. Father? He responded, just a slip. I used his words. We both smiled. I hope I never see you again unless you're wearing one of my uniforms, he said sternly. You won't see me in uniform, I said, but you might see me. As I climbed out, my map was already folded inside my pocket. Never say never, son, he said, and pulled away. Chapter 9, Body Search I called Uma and spoke briefly. We conversed like nothing special was happening in my life. I wasn't sure if she was feeling any sense of danger because of my abduction. To be sure, I spoke calmly and carefully and joyfully to place her heart at ease. Akimi, I called her at her uncle's apartment at 5.30 p.m. Hi. She said softly, I'm coming. I hung up. Seoul was a three to four hour car ride depending on the route and the speed. I checked it on the map inside my room at Baraka after a shower and a cut. I decided to make arrangements for us to go together. My wife and her grandmother should be introduced as soon as possible. It would take time for her to see and react and adjust to Akimi. Then, it would take time for her to, re- to learn of Ju Yoon's life, death, and ashes. I didn't want to be cold, yet I knew we had to get it all started up right away. Akimi was excited when she saw me, but acting calm and cool in her aunt and uncle's presence. As usual, it was her eyes that gave her heart away. When I arrived, everyone was ready. Dong Hua, Sun Yoon, their two sons, and the two-year-old daughter. I didn't get the chance to see Akimi separately from them. Chicken galbi was my big outside Korean food experience. In a well-lit restaurant with long and wide wooden family-sized tables, we all sat. Dong Hua's family, Akimi, and I, and Black C, and the girl with the killer eyes from Busan University, were all there as promised. It wasn't as though we were too unusual compared to the other customers, except that I wasn't Korean. Our party of nine was ordinary. The entire restaurant was packed, 
with families and couples and babies, babies, babies. The grill was at the center of each table heating up. The Korean waitress arrived and greeted all of us nicely and set down a large metal ring. She set the table with a long metal spoon and a set of chopsticks for each person. When she returned, she carried a rectangular bucket of raw, thinly sliced chicken breast. It was seasoned, marinated, and drowning in a thick red spicy sauce that resembled Sudanese shata. The waitress placed the chicken, several pounds of it, in the center of the metal ring. When a fillet was too long or thick, she cut it with a huge pair of scissors which could be found on each table. When the chicken began to sizzle and cook, she left and returned with two more waitresses who served us each a series of small bowls containing different sides, soup, salad, radish, kimchi, and bean sprouts. I observed that the Koreans liked to have a bunch of small dishes on every table where people gathered to eat and enjoy. They'd rather sip 30 times from tiny glasses than drink all that they could out of one big glass. They'd rather eat small portions out of 24 tiny dishes than give each person their own plate and pile the foods up on two or three big serving dishes. I figured it must be a visual arts thing for them. I'll admit, I watched the food process intensely. I had not eaten since before sunrise yesterday, although I did have some water last night in the cabin. The waitress kept appearing and reappearing, moving the chicken around with two thick and long wooden paddles to make sure it was well cooked. The feeling and the energy was good. to have the attention of his wife back on himself. Akimi was feeding me with her chopsticks while teaching me to hold and maneuver mine properly. I ate more chicken than everyone else at the table, which seemed to fascinate all of them. At moments, I would catch each of them separately or in pairs or sets staring at me. You must be really hungry. Black Sea said. When I had seen him yesterday, he had hair. Tonight, he had a Caesar, just like mine, and rocked a white washcloth in the back pocket of his jeans, same as me. His body is big, so he has to eat, the girl with the killer eyes said, gesturing and flashing her newly manicured nails. Akimi's eyes moved on her. Akimi said something to the girl in Korean. The girl answered back and then they were talking. What about after this? You want to come check out the music scene? Check out a few parties, right? Black Sea said. I got my wife, I told him. You can bring her, he urged. Nah, why would I bring her to a party, I asked him. Then come alone, take a look around. You got a shorty right there. What you gonna do with her? I pointed out. 
He smiled. She's thinking about you. She shouldn't. I'm married. I'm happy. I got more than enough. Black C looked like he was thinking. Is she a good girl? I asked him, referring to the girl with the eyes. Korean girls are a whole lot of work, but they're good girls, he said. Think it's a work, my man? I said. We laughed. Tell me where the party's at. I'll take my wife home and come through late just to check out the music, I told him. But if I don't come through, you'll understand. Don't hold it against me, I said. You got it, he said. At Dong Hua's apartment, he and I sat alone in the living room. Is your wife enjoying my wife, I asked him. Thank you. I meant to thank you. My wife is so happy. She is treating Akimi as a Dongseng, not like a niece. I understood Sun Yun and Akimi were like sisters, not aunt and niece. Good. I'll be here to get her back tomorrow evening. Oh, and I'll need you to set up the meeting with her grandmother. I decided I'll take Akimi up to Seoul. I can't plan to stay in Busan too much longer, I said. Oh, I see. Jam Ganmanyo, the professor said, getting up. Jam Ganmanyo means wait a minute. It's the same phrase as the Japanese Chato Mate. He went into the back of his apartment and Akimi came out front. She sat down next to me and leaned against my body. Mayonaka, she said. Yes, I answered. Akimi Mayonaka, miss, she said, always putting her English verb at the end of the sentence and out of order. I don't know if she was upset that I didn't show up the night before to check her, but I hope she knew for sure that I'd wanted to and wasn't playing around. I hugged her. One of the sons showed up in the living room. What's your name? I asked him. Chonin Kim Jeonhua Mida, he answered. Kim Jeonhua, do you speak English? I asked him. Very little, he said shyly, seeming much younger and softer than any Brooklyn male at 13. How do I say in Korean, I love you? He looked around the room and everywhere except at me. Then he said, Sarang Hamida. I repeated his words, trying to get the pronunciation right to Akimi. She smiled so much that I asked Chan Hua, how do I say, Akimi, I'll love you forever. He said, Akimi, Dangshin Sarang Hamida Yangwani. I repeated it. We all began laughing. Now say in Korean, don't worry, I will never leave you. If I go anywhere, I will always come back to you. He said, Nanyun Hangsang Dongsingyote Dola Ogyoya. I repeated it. Akimi slid her arms around me. Danghua and Sun Yun came out together. The professor looked oddly at his son as though he thought he had missed out on something. They both sat down. Akimi eased her arms and body off of leaning on mine. Now we were five on the floor. We contacted Akimi's grandmother. We can all go to Seoul tomorrow night. 
we'll meet her Monday afternoon, but my wife and I will have to return to Busan immediately after the meeting. He was checking for my reactions. I could tell there was probably more to it, so I didn't say anything. We decided that we all need to be there when she first sees Akimi and hears the news. It's better this way. We have to be sure. The professor sounded worried. What time tomorrow night, I asked. If we leave at eight, we'll get there before midnight, he said, and then laughed at his use of my name in another manner. All right, then. In Seoul, I'll buy our airline tickets to the U.S. Akimi and I will fly out from there, I said. We'll see, the professor said. We don't have a way of knowing what will happen in Seoul. He said it in a way that didn't sound like he thought I needed his permission to get the tickets to leave, but like he was expecting or feeling that something big or unusual might happen. As I started to leave, Akimi said, Please, stay. Her eyes pleading. I knew she wanted to be with Sun Yoon in the days, but definitely wanted to be with me in the nights. I looked at Dong Hua. This was his apartment, his space. You and I can sleep here in the living room, and Akimi and my wife in the back, Dong Hua said. I smiled. We're married, Akimi and me, I reminded him. Why would I want to stay with him when I could stay with her? Late night, the apartment lights were all off. Dong Hua was asleep on the living room floor as he wanted it, and I was sitting on the couch in the living room, thinking. Suddenly, I saw Akimi crawling by from behind the couch and out onto their enclosed glass terrace. Now, she was seated on her knees behind a plant, waving me over. I smiled and walked over. She placed her pretty palms on the terrace floor, asking me to sit beside her. She was wearing unsexy pajamas, a big shirt, and drawstring pants that were too big also, with huge red strawberries all over. I knew what she was thinking. When the sun rises again, there would be no touching. She wanted to touch me. I wanted to touch her, too. Off in the corner of the terrace, shielded by the plants, with the terrace door shut, we sat down together. She crawled into my lap, put both hands on my face, and just stroked my skin. I pulled her close and stroked her hair and then her neck. I put my hands underneath her big pajama shirt and felt her goosebumps. I stroked the bare skin of her back. Her body heated up. I wasn't going to make love to her while Dong Hua was lying down asleep on the other side of the glass, even though we were shielded by the plants. She was breathing in my ear, which raised up my temperature and sped up my pulse. I started tonguing her, and that felt good. She came closer, wrapped her legs around my back, and hugged my neck so tight. She pulled back and put her hands beneath my shirt. Her traveling fingers felt the welts and abrasions on my chest from dragging my body underneath the truck the night before. Soon, I was under a full body search by her fingertips. Now, I was lying on my back, being licked. Our sex life was furious, more turbulence than any flight to anywhere in the world. 
Meanwhile, she had a love for me that no language could describe.